This episode is sponsored by Mint Home Loans. With mortgage interest rates nearing all-time lows, now is the time to see what options you may qualify for. Make Mint Home Loans your trusted partner for all your mortgage needs. In today's times, your money matters. Shop local with Mint at 410-458-6847 for any home loan questions you may have. Welcome to Life's Tough. You can be tougher. I'm Dustin Plantle, your host. This is a show about life, and we talk purpose, and we discuss the things that are happening around us every single day, and some of the people that are there operating, we, not, we don't always get to see them. Today, our special guest is Dr. Phil Stieg. In addition to his clinical practice, Dr. Stieg is chairman and founder of the Well Cornell Medicine Brain and Spine Center in New York City. He's a frequent lecturer around the world, and he recently launched the second season of his bi-weekly podcast, This Is Your Brain, with Dr. Phil Stieg. As you're going to hear his story today, he's a man with a purpose. He's on a mission, and he has a journey. And his journey is to help people around the world to improve their outcome. We hope you join in. Dr. Steak, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you have a very powerful story and a powerful message. But one of, while we couldn't give our audience everything, it's today we're going to talk to you about what it took to become a neurosurgeon, what it takes to control your brain if you can ever really do that. And then ultimately, what are some of the lessons you've learned along the way? How has your journey brought you here so with that, before you were a neurosurgeon, take me all the way back, Doc. What was your first job? My first job was probably when I was 10 years old, shoveling snow during the winter and cutting grass and doing gardening for houses around the neighborhood to make a few extra shekels. My first real job was when I started working for the city at age 14 uh, in the public parks. Wow. So 10 years old, then an upgrade from there, just a couple years. <laughs> so that, let me get this straight, because a lot of people around the world, they, they want it and they want it now. So, but before you were the neurosurgeon, you were the gardener, you were the landscaper. Right. <laughs> exactly right. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a post-war child. Uh, my, my parents came over on the boat. So we kind of had that Midwestern work ethic about how to achieve it. And, you know, all of uh, the, the cousins, we all kind of lived within range of each other. We got together every Sunday and played baseball together. And we had this work ethic and everybody went on to, you know, get PhDs, MDs and, and things like that. You know, you go, you go get educated, you're going to do well in life. Was that a lot of pressure for a young man? It wasn't interpreted as pressure. Um, uh, at least I didn't interpret it as pressure. I enjoyed it. You know, it was um, uh, 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 where I wanted to go. So I, I, I truly didn't feel it as pressure. But how did you know you wanted to get into healthcare? I mean, were you a, was it at 12 years old? Was it 16? Like, what made you say, I want to aspire to be? 
Well, uh, truth be known is that I almost died when I was about eight years old. I had a, a tonsillectomy at that time. I had my tonsils taken out, and then I had an acute hemorrhage on Christmas Eve night. And, um, you know, they had to rush me to the hospital, and I had a transfusion. I had a transfusion reaction. You know, this is 1959 when medicine isn't quite as good as today. So <clears throat> I, always, I was always attracted at that from that point on to the concept of science and the concept of healthcare and, and, and medicine. Uh, you know, so I always knew I wanted to be in the science arena. And in addition to that, my cousins, we all, like I said, we all got PhDs in the biosciences and chemistry. So it became easy. Were you ever into anything outside of studying? Like what, what else did you do for fun? Oh gosh, I, like I said, I, I've been working all my life. So during the summer, I was a lifeguard and we played water polo regularly. I was an avid tennis player. Uh, uh, I took a year off after college and just went out west and went to Europe and skied and uh, had a, had what would my one what one might refer to as a normal lifestyle of just sort of hanging out. It was the best year of my life. It sounds like it, it got you prepared for your journey. And so today, you know, you're. As my uncle has said many times, I, I don't save lives, I merely extend them. And so talk about that on this journey for you. What's it like to be in such a position? Um, you know, one of the difficult things to deal with is that it, because it is neurosurgery and for whatever reason, uh, patients have this uh, uh, unusual view of being a neurosurgeon. You know, they, they, they try to throw us into this godlike position, which is a position I don't necessarily want to be in. You know, I am a human being and I am trying to help. But, uh, you know, uh, if you have a bad disease, I'm not necessarily going to be able to change duration of life, but I can change quality of life. So I, uh, the way I approach it is I'm ever mindful of, who the patient is. So for the first 10, 15 minutes of my encounter with the patient, I really try to find out who they are. You know, what's fun for them? Are they married? Do they have kids? What makes their day? Uh, what their value system is? Because in my mind, that then helps me advise them on what might be the best way to approach their particular disease process. And the different diseases that of the people that you work with, the conditions that they have. What are some of those conditions? Well, it ranges from, I only do brain work and then other neurosurgeons only do spine work. So focusing on the brain, I do complex brain tumors ranging from malignant brain tumors where patients have an average survival of only about 16 months to benign tumors where if we do a good job, they're completely cured. I also do vascular neurosurgery as like an aneurysm in the brain or uh, abnormal blood vessel tangles and things like that, where again, if we do a great job, the patient can have a completely normal lifestyle. And you know, it's kind of dependent upon where the, where the problem is. If it's sitting in the middle of somebody's brain, I'll, I'll refer to it as the seat of the soul. Um, I'm going to be uh, less likely to have a good result. So then I have to start trying to modify the treatment options so that the patient, in my mind, I hope makes a good decision about what to do. Now, part of your career has been spending time overseas. You, know, you spent some time in Sweden. And then on from there, you joined the faculty of the Harvard Medical School. What took you overseas? Um I was always, during my PhD, I was always interested in stem cell biology. And then when I went back to medical school and uh, was in neurosurgery, 
at that time, this was 1987, was when all the work was going on uh, using, on at that time, embryonic stem cells, and Sweden was the center for that. So I went over and uh, participated in uh, the, the human trial for human embryonic stem cell transplants for the treatment of Parkinson's disease. And how far along are we with that for Parkinson's? <clears throat> Thus far, stem cells uh, haven't proven to be uh, therapeutic. There is another new trial that is just starting, not with embryonic stem cells, but with engineered stem cells that might be useful. Uh, there are other ways that uh, we're starting to treat Parkinson's disease using viruses as a vector, you know, a Trojan horse to deliver the missing neurotransmitter called dopamine to the brain. You know, so there are a number of different innovative ways that we're trying to conquer this disease. Now, as a doctor, obviously the, the family and extended family, they look up to you for counsel and advice, but who do you go to? Is there, is there someone that has been your rock or, or was your rock to kind of get you through the tough days? You know, uh, fortunately, uh, throughout my life, both my mother and father uh, served uh, that role. Uh, my mother was very intelligent, very reflective, and we had that kind of relationship where we had a dialogue rather than the mother-son relationship. Uh, my dad was more meat and potatoes, but uh, he was the more stable figure. My mother, being intelligent, was a little bit more histrionic on occasion and creative and entrepreneurial, whereas my dad was just a steady rock. And so I could play between the two of them and, and get different opinions. My brothers and I are very close. We still, to this age, get together every year and play a week of golf, and, and they bring their kids and I bring mine. So there's a lot of family stability, which I don't think exists as much in America anymore. And that's uh, uh, problematic as I see it. And, and why do you think that is? Because while not everybody from your generation had the same fundamental values for their family, yours did, and it has been successful for many others. But why yep. do you think today there's such a, a shift away from that? I think that society is much more mobile. If I look at uh, it, it, say if my brothers and I did not have that value system, I think the likelihood of the, that my brother's children that live in California, Wisconsin, and my children, one lives in Arizona, the other one here in New York, they're not going to get together. I mean, it's just really, really hard. So it, it, it has to be a core commitment that uh, you view family interaction as a stabilizing factor. And if, you, if you're not raised that way, because now everybody moves all over for their jobs. Uh, it just doesn't become a, va a, a value system. And I have to admit, when I was growing up, the divorce rate wasn't 50%. You know, so you've got moms and dads splitting up. They take the kids in different directions. So there's a number of socioeconomic factors that play against family stability. So how did you do it as a dad? I mean, as your career was rising and you had this yep. family, were you able to put them first? How do you find that balance? <laughs> well, uh, if you ask my ex-wife, you would uh, she would suggest that I didn't do it well. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I, I when I talk with my children about it, I mean, they always felt like I was there. You know, they knew that I had a busy job and they knew that I was a neurosurgeon. Uh, but on weekends, I, you know, I basically I kind of when they were growing up, I gave up 
I didn't play golf. I didn't play tennis. I gave up my life. I was with them and I got involved in their hobbies. And, you know, I would try to get home on set times for dinner. I would try to do some homework with them. Uh, 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 quite frankly, uh, after I was divorced, uh, I, I was uh, I felt a little bit freer to spend more time isolated with them myself. So it was actually a positive experience in terms of my relationship with my children. And again, it, it, it comes down to that commitment to what is valuable in your life. And I you know, for, for very specific reasons, didn't get remarried, didn't get involved. I, you know, I, I figured, you know, my responsibility was my kids and it was my responsibility that I got divorced. So for the next 10 years, you know, they were 15. I said, for the next 10 years, I just got to be there. And that, that's my job aside from what I chose for a, a vocation. You know, that that's a big thing that there is this belief that when mommy and daddy, if mommy and daddy split up, that somehow the kids won't be as loved and from the, the parents' perspective. But what you have said is that's just not true. You can still love them hard, be their full-time dad, be their full-time yeah. mom. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't hard, uh, but, I mean, excuse me, it was hard. I still really worked at maintaining a relationship with their mothers so that we could be friends. We still get together for Christmas and Thanksgiving so that they have that sort of sense of family. Uh, you know, it's not as husband and wife, but um, I, I'm not saying that's right for everybody. I mean, clearly, if two people hate each other and they just can't get together without arguing, that's not good for the kids. We fortunately were able to get over that hump and 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 have a, a, a rational conversation for the day and still talk about values and things like that. You know, having watched my uncle for years, the cardiologist, and he at one point he was the chief of cardiology, I think for about 20 years, is that he would be the last one at the table to, to a Christmas party, to a family event. He'd come in in his scrub, say, ah, I got to go. And he'd be paged yeah. on this little device that, that that's what it takes. When you are being called to a purpose, in this case, as a physician and a high performance physician, I might add, that it takes a certain dedication that says, I will give it all I have. And, and it takes the dedication on the part of your family, you know? I mean, they understand that, that that's what you value. That's the career you chose. You know, it's the line from The Godfather, you know, when Marlon Brando says, this is the life we chose, you know? <laughs> and uh, right. you know, and everybody has to go along with that. Um, uh, obviously, there's give. I, I mean, did I enjoy the fact that I could didn't really have a lot of, independent time while the kids were growing up you know there are times when i was sad that i couldn't be on a golf course or a tennis court or travel you know do something like that but you know you get over that when you look at these two little precious bodies growing up and developing personalities it's uh, uh, quickly forgotten and i've been fortunate both my kids have, have been successful so now when you were going through your residency some of the people you worked with. I mean, these were the people that I imagine you were looking up to that at some point you went above even their skill set. How'd you do that? I wouldn't say I, you know, I had the good fortune of training with some real superstars. And, uh, uh, I would say that I feel fortunate enough to have achieved their skill set, uh, and, uh, work at the same, at the same level. Um, growing up as a kid, uh, in the Midwest, my, my hero 
was uh, Vince Lombardi, who you may have heard of. Uh, he was the coach of the Packers. And, you know, every year we won either the NFL title or the Super Bowl. And so I had this sort of drive uh, to uh, excel. And I think that's a characteristic of a lot of neurosurgeons. We're a little bit of overachievers. And, you know, so I, uh, when I trained with these individuals down at uh, UT Southwestern and Parkland Hospital, it was always just this um, uh, drive to achieve their skill level. And then, you know, the other, the other component that, that is changing in the field of neurosurgery and in the field of medicine is the, the concept of an emotional IQ. Neurosurgeons aren't really well known for having an emotional IQ. If you go back to the old TV show called Ben Casey, he was just kind of this gruff, grumpy neurosurgeon. You know, you can't be that way anymore. Now you have to be friendly. You have to get along. You want to be a team leader because doing neurosurgery is a team sport now. It's not only me operating. I need neuropsychologists, neurologists, neuro-oncologists, radiation oncologists, anesthesiologists, intensive care doctors, palliative care doctors, and then, you know, nursing staff, physicians, assistants, and administrators. It's a, it's a real intermix of different skill sets, personality types. And if you, if you can't get along, you're not going to get along. You're not going to get very far in life. So what's that process been like now? You are at the point where you've earned the right to be at the operating table. Tell me about the first experience. What do you remember? The first, I, I, I tell you, the first, thank God, you know, when I, when I, I moved from Texas up to Boston at Harvard, I thought, you know, uh, the first case has to be a success, right? Otherwise, you know, the word gets out that, oh, we brought this hack up from Texas. Yeah. So thank God it was not a terribly complex case. It was a cervical spine operation back then. And, you know, the patient did beautifully and did well. And, uh, yeah, but I, I shoot, to this day, I still tell my residents and I still do it is I went through that case probably back then I went through it 50 times. Now I go through it, you know, five, 10 times every night before I do an operation, every step from, from well, the patient moving into the room to the time they roll out so that I know exactly what I want and then I know how to anticipate. And then like a good athlete, you do contingency planning. You know, if the person hits me a forehand rather than a backhand, what am I going to do? How do I respond to that? So it's, um, uh, you know, those are traits that I, I, I acquired and I've never let go. And in terms of what you say, you know, now I, I, I get to be at the table. I, my children have always reminded me that I still pull my pants on one leg at a time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they, they still, they still remind you, you're just, that's dad. Yeah. You know, it's, it's fascinating to see what happens that there are times where the, the outcome is outside of the control of, of the doctor and the family gets very disappointed and very angry and they lash out. And now there's an entire community of professionals where their sole purpose in life is to, to be litigious and to go after doctors. So talk about yeah. that. What is that like every day knowing that any single case you've ever been attached to that if your name is anywhere on a document that you forever yeah. can be held responsible, accountable. And, and there is a saying in life doc that says, if you're defending, you're losing. Yeah. Well, uh, number one, neurosurgery and obstetrics are the two. We have the two highest rates of malpractice. So, you know, in New York, uh, it is my privilege to pay $220,000 a year just to sit and talk to a patient. Okay. 
So um, uh, it, it ain't cheap to be a neurosurgeon just as, and that's before you start making any money, okay? Now, <clears throat> how do I approach that dilemma? Uh, that's why I spend time getting to know my patients. I wanna know who they are, how they, you know, what makes them tick. And uh, I have found that being completely transparent about what the risks are associated with doing something has been uh, beneficial. Now, I've only been sued once in my life, uh, 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 and it was just, it was a bad outcome on a, on a case that was a very hard case. So the, there's where you can get caught in the sense of, you know, how do you handle bad outcomes? And, and number one, number two, the patient or the patient's family response. So for example, take a patient that has a malignant brain tumor Eventually, they are going to die, but that isn't necessarily my fault or any doctor's fault. So you have to get them emotionally prepared. Uh, in scenarios where there's a, a, a bad outcome, uh, again, if you've explained adequately to the patient what the potential negative things are, most of them will understand that it was within the range of possibilities and they fully understood that. But the, 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 the healthcare system in America is structured such that there's, it's, it's not a no fault. You know what I mean? It's yeah. a, it, like car driving is it's no fault insurance here. If a patient has a, a deficit after we've done something, they have no alternative, but to sue the doctor in the hospital because they can't pursue their life's sure. goals. And there isn't a, a safety net for them. It's the way the system is structured. It's the way it's designed. Yeah. So, there have been many occurrences over over time documented that on the deathbed, some people see things or some people who die and they come back. So I have to ask the question, is this just your brain and the final acts, the final moments, or is there something else? You know, if I knew the answer to that, I'd be uh, I'd be a lot richer and a lot more famous. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping for yeah. breaking news. Say, Dustin, I uh, solved it. Well, you know, so the breaking news is is that you know uh, there's always a, I, I gave a lecture once on God in the brain. You know, there are people that have uh, seizure disorders, particularly from the temporal lobe, a specific region in the brain. Uh, they will have visitations of angels and and godlike uh, uh, experiences, and quite frankly, there is new research going on, uh, particularly with astronauts, when they expose them to uh, uh, high G force, they can get them to basically, you know, stop. They get their brain to stop, and even those astronauts have experienced pleasurable experiences. So it's unclear whether it's the innate wiring of the brain, a release of a particular set of neurotransmitters. Uh, uh, but the, the interesting thing is that we now do have an avenue for looking into this and determining whether the brain is hardwired for a god or whether there, it's just the, the spontaneous release of all these brain chemicals. So how do you then determine in life it's the faith versus science aspect? And then how did the two ever kind of meet in the middle and smack each other? Um, as long as you don't speak to extremists on either side, the answer is yes. Uh, and for one of my podcasts, I'm still working on trying to get some scientists and some religious figures together to see how they, you know, how they in their own minds 
uh, bring this together. You know, there, obviously there's the, there's the Darwinists, of course, and then there's the, the, the creationists. Um, uh, 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 you know, and, and these are the age-old questions that we continue to struggle with. I think from a from a behavioral standpoint, uh, you know, my answer to it is is if most religions that I know of usually result in better behavior, um, um, you know, unless you're an extremist. Uh, so it isn't necessarily bad for you, either emotionally, intellectually, or for society, if that's what you choose to do. Now, I love country music. True story. My wife goes, how can you like that music? And I say, how can you not like that music? So I, do, you I, like to, do, you, do you like to two-step? I do not know how to dance. I don't know how to do... But what I want to know, does the does the brain influence personality that for some reason, I didn't grow up in the South, that I go, I love it. There's something about the sound. It means something to me. Right. Well, um, the, when you say, does the brain affect personality, it, it means to me that you have this abstract view of what the brain is. The brain is your personality. Okay. You're, you're born. And, and, and the, the, the big question is how much of it is nature versus how much of it is nurture. Okay. And by nature, I mean, what is the genetic structure of your brain? And there clearly is, there's evidence now that suggests that mothers that listen to music during the pregnancy, children will have a greater sense of a music appreciation. Now, maybe your mother listened to country Western music. You know, you'll have to go back and ask her. Um, uh, you know, but you know, again, part of that is also environmental. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's both. It, it, is, it must be so fascinating to hear, even for you after doing this for, for decades now, there's still the, I just can't figure this part out completely. Like there, there still are those, wow, why can't I even rap? Do you ever think we'll be able to wrap our heads, so to speak, around some of these complex ideas and concepts and everything else? Not in our lifetime. I mean, I think that now with functional MRI scanning, we are learning a lot about when I started in science, we used to think that you were born with a set of nerve cells, a set of brain cells. And if they died, you lost them. Now we know that you got stem cells and you can regenerate what's called neuroplasticity. And uh, uh, with that neuroplasticity, new connections can be made. So I, I, you know, I, I, I think that um, we're getting a better understanding of our, the brain connections and how it affects memory and speech. An example would be, uh, you know, I, I did a piece on Gabby Giffords after she was shot and she went to the hospital and her music therapist on the day she met her, which was two weeks after the gunshot, walked into the room and the therapist recognized that if she started singing a tune, Gabby would mouth the words, okay? And with that therapy then, she got Gabby back to speaking. And that's because speech, excuse me, music, unlike speech, is represented throughout the brain, but speech is predominantly located in one particular area, which was hit by the gunshot. So using the music, She's able to get her back and develop new nerve cells so that she could speak. So when we talk about exercising and we talk about concussions and we talk about that it seems to be all of these things are involved with the brain that most people throughout their day don't realize going how much happens from this very word I've just said 
from my brain. So how do I feed it? Quite frankly, how do I feed it to get smarter as opposed yep. to taking in stuff that it shouldn't take in? Yep. Um, you know, that, that's the reason I started the podcast is, you know, I thought that there was a lot of commercialized stuff going on out there. And I figured I mean, my, my podcast isn't commercial. It's, it's, it's really about trying to help you pursue the concept of brain health. So how do you achieve brain health? It's pretty much similar to heart health. You know, so if you go to the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association and you look about what's good for the heart, that's true for the brain as well. So you want to get plenty of sleep. You want to get regular exercise. I don't advocate high impact exercise. I, you know, because as you age, it's not good for your joints. I advocate, you know, elliptical trainers, Stairmaster, uh, uh, stationary bikes, bands rather than 300 pound snatch and jerks. Um, uh, diet is very important. You can either do the mind diet, the Mediterranean diet or the dash diet. They're all the same. It's lots of fish, leafy vegetables, staying away from red meat, uh, you know, a lot drinking a little bit of red wine is good for you. Not consuming too much alcohol. Um, uh, I think I personally think that there's plenty of data to suggest now that meditation is good for you. Uh, mindfulness training. Uh, is, is, is good for you. It reduces stress levels. You need to have eight hours of sleep so that your cortisol, one of the hormones in your body, uh, goes down. If you have two, if your cortisol levels are too high, it does damage to the blood vessels and to your neurons. Uh, yeah, so, so those are the important factors. The other thing, too, is um, uh, uh, you know, staying in contact with people, having intimate relationships, not sexually, but you know, intimate personally, uh, friendships, being in interactive uh, activities. Uh, and then probably, uh, I personally feel that you shouldn't retire. Or if you're going to retire, find some other avocation that keeps your noodle working. Because <clears throat> if you sit alone in an isolated room, that's not good for you. So you have had the opportunity now that you're in New York to meet with, I imagine, some of the world's most influential people. Uh, you've been on boards, you've been on committees that everyone wants to find out this way to kind of live forever. At least some of the people that I've met. W what can I do? What, what's the secret? Yep. Will, will there be this ability to take your brain, take a snapshot of it and be able to put it into something and keep going? Well, we're hopeful that um, with stem cell technology, that there may be some anti-aging uh, interventions that we can do. It's still experimental, uh, uh, but I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, that will be beneficial. Certainly there are stem cells that reduce the amount of inflammation in the body. Uh, and do they provide cells, as you age, obviously you lose cells and your cells become senescent, just like the rest of your body. So they don't respond. So if you replenish it with stem cells, uh, might that be a benefit? And there's some preliminary data suggesting that may be the case. And you know, as well as I do, that there are some very prominent individuals that are going and getting stem cell therapy uh, off uh, the uh, boundaries of the United States. And I, I, I think that that's still, uh, you know, it, it's potentially an option. Now, why are they not allowing it here? Uh, it's, it's, you know, mostly regulatory. I think that the people that are doing it are doing it from a business perspective. 
and uh, it, you know it isn't cheap to generate the stem cells. So if you want to do this, you have to do it as a private business, and it hasn't then passed the FDA approval regulations. Uh, uh, you know, so it, it just makes it difficult to do here. Now, how long do you think that if we could embrace that? How old do you think we could live? I mean, independent of having to find a cure for cancer and some other things, how long could we live? Well, uh, when I was a kid, people died at 65. Now when I see a patient and they say, oh, I'm old and they're 65, I say, wait a minute, you're in middle life now. You're not starting to get old until 80 to 85. And people are, you know, people are living in, in, into their 90s. I mean, think of how many 90-year-olds you, you know now. It's, uh, it's astounding. So <clears throat> uh, uh, from a brain standpoint, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that with, with cell-based therapies and regenerative medicine, we can keep things going. What I worry about more is your joints. You know, my dad lived in 96, but he ended up, you know, the last year of his life getting around with a walker because his legs were, knees were bad, his, the discs between his spine were painful and, and all that. So the de-aging aspect, is it taking back years? Is it bringing on years? What would that even look like? Well, I think, I think that the aging process would be adding on quality years. And, and the problem that we're going to have, or as I see it, is you know, patients come to me and they've, they've led an abusive life to their body. You know, they smoke, they drank, they've not gotten exercise, and they look at me and they say, Doc, fix it. Okay. What we need to get people to realize, and this is not just the wealthy, it's everybody, even people that work two jobs and work hard. I get it. Those are stressful existences. But if you want to live a long time, you got to pay attention to your body. And that this is all stuff that starts when you're in your 30s. It doesn't start all of a sudden when the light goes on and you're 50 and you have your first heart attack. It's when you're 30. You know, there's, there's uh, you think about from a female perspective, uh, you know, you're either taking birth control pills or you've had several babies. What are those hormone fluctuations, what impact does that have on your body as you as you age? Dementia is more common in females. Why is that? Is it related to these hormonal fluctuations? So you need to start thinking about things like that. Uh, uh, there's also some earlier thoughts that dementia starts when you're 30. It doesn't all of a sudden hit when you're 65. So what things can you do to try to prevent the onset of dementia? So I would implore your listeners to really, you know, number one, go to their doctors and hopefully they go to a holistic, integrative kind of doctor that that actually has thought about this kind of stuff, which is rare, but it's becoming more common and really work on trying to improve their lifestyle. Now, you're also the founder of the uh, a practice called the Brain and Spine Center in New York City, which means brain and spine. Yeah. So talk about that a little bit. Well, neurosurgeons do, uh, uh, in our armamentarium of things we do, we operate on the brain, we operate on the spine, and we operate on peripheral nerves. So, you know, you get a, you know, you get your hand caught in a lawnmower, we'll sew the nerves back together for you. Uh, you know, the brain thing we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, the spine is, let's face it, the number one reason for going to the doctor is low back pain. Uh, so we put together this comprehensive spine center, and again, 
It takes a holistic approach towards the management of spine. Not everybody needs surgery. Some people need trigger point injections. Uh, some people need cognitive behavioral therapy. You can change the way they perceive their pain. Uh, uh, other people need acupuncture. Uh, you know, so uh, uh, there are all these different ways that we can treat low back pain, which fits into the brain and spine center because let's face it, if you have low back pain, there's not only that disability, but it affects the way you look at life. If you get up every morning and your back hurts, what do you think it does to your mentality, your emotional mindset? So we have to try to help you get past that as well, again, to improve and maximize the quality of your life. I love that message to improve the quality. You're not suggesting so you can live forever because from what I've heard, mortality, morbidity is kind of for certain, at least at yeah. this stage where we are. <laughs> well, look, Doc, we've asked a lot of you. We've asked you to share us, share with us your story, also part of your journey, what it took to get here, how you stay here, and how you stay here is educating yourself on all the new advancements, being at the front of the line. So who pushes you? I mean, again, you you just, I, I think of you like a Ferrari, you're high performance. So is there someone that pushes you at this point? I think it's, you know, um, not that I view myself like these individuals, but, you know, think of your life, who you know, the stars in your life, who pushed them. It's an internal engine. You know, I get up in the morning and it just, you know, I can't help myself. I got to do it. You know, it's, it's, you know, and, and, and I pick areas and it's, it's this conquest of, okay, certain aspects of neurosurgery for me are now very easy. You know, so I don't have to think about them very much anymore. So I'm looking for an emotional, intellectual, personal challenge. And uh, for me, the, the challenge has become in the comprehensive management of brain and spine disease, which includes neurosurgery, but it's beyond neurosurgery. It's neuropsychology. Okay. It's, 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 it's a psychiatry, neuropsychopharmacology. It's all these parameters that affect who you are as a person. And if a patient has, is inquisitive and they have the desire to improve, make themselves better, expand themselves either intellectually, emotionally, or personally, you know, I want them to have a home to come to where we can help them find. It. Thank you again for sharing your story. Life's tough. Dr. Phil Stieg is tougher. Thanks again, doc. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Stieg for sharing your story. And to the listeners out there, what was your takeaway? Mine was a man on a journey, a mission to learn something new every single day to become the expert in his field, but also to show humility, knowing that there were people that helped him along his journey. Who were you helping in your journey? Who's been in your path along the way that needs you now, that needs you more than ever? Who is dealing with that trauma, the anxiety, the worry, the fear, the divorce. What are they struggling with? Dr. Stieg meets with people around the world, people that have problems, people that were born with problems that were proclivities. They were genetic conditions that were going to happen. He can't fix every single problem, but what he can is help them live a life that allows them to learn more. They say that as long as you live, keep learning how to live. At some point, you will have your aha moment. Maybe in your 30s, 
or 40s or your 50s. Today, make the decision. It's a new year. What's your mindset? What are your goals? What is that thing that has been holding you back? What is that thing that will eventually take your life? That will put you in the ground before your time? That will take your brain from where it was supposed to be and that was a mission, a purpose. And it'll stop it in its tracks. It'll rewire it. It'll fill you with other emotions and feelings that you were not supposed to have. Moments of fear. Moments that were there because you created it. Dr. Steve gets asked questions every single day. How do I fix this? What do I do next? He told us he has some of the answers. But there are times even he can't tell them what to do next. But he is a man that's living his life with a purpose and a mission, and that is to lift others up and to help them live lives that are worth living. Lives that will empower the next generation. As I challenge you, life's tough. You can be tougher. Thanks again for joining us, everyone.